All right, uh, so we are uh, in lesson four on page 25, bottom of page 25. And we are continuing looking at the person and work of Christ. Last week we looked at uh, that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. Uh, and this week we're going to look at uh, the various ways in which Jesus Christ is revealed in Scripture as having different conditions or states. Um, and so before we jump in, Bob, can you open us in prayer? Yes. Dear Lord, we thank you for this study. We thank you that you watch over and uh, protect us. Lord, be with us as we explore this subject. And Lord, our minds might be in tune with your word. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the first state that we see of Christ in the Scripture is what's called the pre-incarnate state. Now, I'm sure that you can use your context clues to figure out what that means. Uh, you have the prefix pre, which means before, and incarnate, uh, his incarnation. So it is before his birth, uh, Christ existed as the eternally begotten Son, the second person of the Trinity, equal in power and authority with the Father. So we are looking at before His incarnation, before He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Charlie, can I get you to read Psalm 2, verse 7? And then... Uh, Matt, can I get you to read John 1, 1 to 3? Psalm 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So there we see uh, God speak, God the Father speaking to Jesus Christ. Um, and we know this from Psalm 2 verse 1, Jehovah said unto Adonai, uh, this, this is uh, the Father speaking to the Son, the Lord said unto my Lord. Um, so we have the two people communicating here. And how does God refer to Jesus here in verse 7? As his son. As his son. And not only his son, but he also says, Today I have begotten thee. This is before, this is before Christ took on human flesh. So here we see the eternally begotten nature of the second person of the Godhead. All right, John 1. Begotten. begotten. Uh, so begotten is, is that Christ... Uh, is the son of the father. Uh, so children are begotten. Uh, if you read through generations in the, in the Old Testament, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so. It, it speaks of his sonship. Begottenness speaks of his sonship, that the father uh, had a son, Jesus Christ. Um, so, but, so I would say gave birth to him. Yeah, um, in, in a sense. Um, but, but that's not to say that, that Jesus was once part of the Father and then became the Son. Uh, Jesus has always existed as the Son, and he has always been the begotten one. Um, so it, it, it's not necessarily speaking of an action, but as 
a, a status. Um, Um, no, I, I think, I think they get it mixed up in a lot of other places. Uh, so the Catholics would believe just as we do that Christ is eternally God, that he's the second person of the Trinity, that he's the eternally begotten son of the father, um, where they get it mixed up is in, uh, attributing to marry a deification uh, because she was chosen to bear Christ in his human flesh. Uh, so they do get it mixed up in regards to his birth, not necessarily his birth, but in what that means for Mary. Uh, but I don't think that stems back to an errant view of this. Uh, they would agree on this point as we would. Um, and it's important to, uh, it's important to remember or to note that Christ is begotten, not created. And there's a distinction there. Uh, and that's where, that's where the understanding of give birth or, or our, our children, uh, really that analogy breaks down. Because to give birth to something or to have children, um, for humans, that is a creative thing. Um, we are created beings, and yet Christ is begotten, but he was never created. Uh, he has always eternally existed. Um, and so we have to make sure that we distinguish that, that he is begotten, not created, um, or else we fall into the errors of you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. All right, John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. All right, so what does this passage tell us about Jesus, who is the Word, uh, before he came to earth in human flesh? Okay, so we see the eternality, uh, the, the beginningness, uh, that not that Christ had a beginning, but that he was in the beginning. So he precedes the beginning, so he is eternal. Uh, he existed from eternity past. Uh, we also see that he is creator of all things. Uh, what else do we see of Christ? That he was God. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Uh, so we see the uh, coexistence of Christ and the Father, the Son and the Father. Uh, he was with God, and he was God. Uh, so we see the divinity of the Son here as well. So... That is Christ in his pre-incarnate state. Now, we can talk about a ton of different things about Christ in his pre-incarnate state. We could go down a massive rabbit trail. I would rather us not. Uh, we could talk about all the different Christophanies that took place in the Old Testament where Christ appeared to people in his pre-incarnate state. Uh, Bob mentioned one last week about uh, Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek, I know that it's a debate for some people. Um, I would argue Melchizedek is, is, a, is a, an appearing of the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, so we could go down that rabbit trail if you guys want to. Um, but I, I think this suffices uh, for us to see that 
the scriptures clearly speak of the pre-incarnate state of Christ. Uh, so are there any questions regarding that? I guess there's a question about the eternality of the sonship of Christ. You speak about the pre-incarnate Christ. Of course, there are those that say that uh, Jesus became the son or would receive sonship at his baptism. Mm-hmm. Something that happens in his earthly ministry. Um, although I think they would also say that he was in a pre incarnate state in some form, not necessarily uh, such, which is not a son. Um, of course, from Psalm 2, we do see the mm-hmm. Father speaking to the Son. Yeah. In, in my experience, those people also would not uh, would, uh, have a problem with the. Divine birth of Christ, the uh, and so forth. The, the, they they have all sorts of issues if they go to Christ actually receiving a blessing from God at the uh, baptism. Mm-hmm. That that is when He became the Son. Um, yes, I've heard that. Um, it t- it t- to me, in my, in my experience, it tends to be. Very liberals that um, very liberal person is going to deny the authority of scriptures as well as being um, uh, God breathed. Um, they would say that, that you know, scriptures are inspired as God inspired you. Not um, they don't deny God, but they would deny the sonship of Christ, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit, and so forth. Just a whole raft of things that they throw out in order to get to their conclusion um, that Christ was received a special blessing in the baptism. Yeah, I think there are I think there are a few different errors that kind of stem around this. So there's that that you're talking about that Christ was a man who received a blessing. Um, in which he was, you know, given the title of the son. Um, then there are others who, I think this is what you were getting at, Richard, who believe that Christ is God, eternally existent beforehand, but that it wasn't until that point that he received his sonship, uh, which was like him receiving the inheritance the, or the entitlement of the inheritance. Um, they would have said that he's still God, he pre-existed in eternity past, but there was something about you know the Spirit descending upon him like a dove and, and the Father speaking from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Um, but then there are others who uh, would say that similar to what what Bob was talking about, except for this would be more of of a more of an ancient heresy of Christ was a man who, at his baptism, he received divinity, uh, not just that he was given the title of son or that he received the blessing, but that he was a man who took on divinity instead of divine who took on flesh. Uh, so it gets the incarnation backwards. Uh, and then I would say the heresy uh, that we are probably going to experience the most, whether you realize it or not, uh, because it's in reformed circles uh, in regards to this, is what's called eternal functional uh, subordination or eternal subordination of the Son, EFS or ESS. Um, and that is, that is the heresy which teaches that because Christ has always existed in, a, uh, in the state of being a, the Son, He has always been the eternally begotten One, that He is functionally subordinate to the Father uh, in all things eternally. Um, that there is an ontological subordination 
Uh, so something about Christ's being subordinates him uh, under the authority of the Father uh, in, its, in his divine, eternal state. Um, and we would say, no, that's wrong. Obviously, when Christ took on human flesh, he humbled himself, took, taking on the form of a servant and submitted to his Father in all things as the God-man when he took on human flesh. But he, in his divinity, is always equal with the Father. There has never been a subordination of Christ as God to the Father. Um, and you'll see, you'll see this creep up in reformed circles. I don't, I don't know of anyone in our denomination that would espouse this or even flirt with it. But uh, in more loosely reformed circles, um, I'm sure you are aware of who Wayne Grudem is. Uh, he, uh, Wayne Grudem used to teach here. Oh, well, uh, we, we have a history with it. So Wayne Grudem, he is a Baptist uh, systematic theologian. Um, he's written probably the easiest layman's systematic theology uh, book there is. Uh, but he espouses eternal functional subordination. Um, Doug Wilson, uh, who I've mentioned numerous times, uh, espouses eternal functional subordination. Um, and so you got to be careful uh, because these people are in broadly reformed circles. Um, Owen Strachan uh, you may not have heard that name. He's gaining popularity on online. He just took a professorship at a Reformed Baptist seminary, and he espouses this heresy. And it is heresy. It is getting the Trinity wrong. Um, now, I think I think there is room for holding heretical understandings and ignorance. Uh, I think there's grace that can be had there. But these men have been confronted in their heresy and have doubled down in it. And uh, I think once that has happened, once men have been confronted in their heresy and have doubled down in it, that they should be marked and avoided. Um, Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say just, you know, if you want to hear their rationale behind it, there are many articles on why uh, they believe what they believe. Um, I'd say read them with a grain of salt. These are, these are eloquent men. These are well-spoken men. Um, and Satan is the father of lies, and he's the deceiver. Um, and he can use these eloquent, well-spoken men to deceive you. So just be careful reading it. Uh, but I mean, they, they have explained why it is they believe this. They haven't just explained the doctrine. They've explained why they believe it. Um, so I would say read their explanation because I don't want to put words in their mouth. But read it. Cautiously. Good. That that I mean that's that's a good answer. All right. So uh, moving on from pre-incarnate Christ uh, and heresies. Uh, so the second state in which we see Christ. So we had his pre-incarnate state. His second state is in uh, a state of humiliation. A state of humiliation. And if you guys remember uh, a few weeks back, I preached on this, uh, the next two states of Christ, the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Um, so hopefully, hopefully this won't come as anything new to you. 
so looking at the humiliation of Christ, uh, it begins with his incarnation. Uh, the incarnation of Christ, which is Jesus was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin. And he humbled himself by thus adding a human nature to his divine person. This is his first act of humiliation, is the incarnation, taking on human flesh, uh, assuming a human nature, taking upon himself a reasonable soul. Um, so can I get someone to read John 1.14, and then Galatians 4.4, 4, and then Luke 1.34 and 35. So John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All right, so in that passage, the Word became flesh, uh, meaning that he became human. Uh, he assumed human flesh. Galatians 4.4. 4. So in what two ways did Christ choose to be like us? Uh, he was both born of woman, or of a woman, and born under the law. Yeah, so he was born of a woman, uh, speaking to his physical state, uh, that he was uh, a human just like us. And that he's born under the law, which speaks to his spiritual state that he is subject to the law of God just as we are. Um, and so there we see Christ uh, subjecting himself uh, to these things, taking on human flesh, subjecting himself to the law. Uh, and, and that is an act of humiliation, being brought low. Uh, when you consider the loftiness of Christ in his pre-incarnate state, uh, you see how low it is for the one who uh, existed from the beginning, the one who is the eternally begotten Son of the Father, the one through whom all things were created, the one who is God, when you see that, you see how low it is for him to take on human flesh and to subject himself to the law. All right, Luke 1, 34 and 35. Then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. All right, so how is Jesus' birth different from all other human beings? Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a virgin, uh, which is a physical impossibility. Uh, and so that is, that is what makes Christ's birth unique. Um, if you lose the virgin birth, if you lose uh, Christ being conceived by the Holy Spirit, you lose the gospel. Um, if you go down to any of these mainstream liberal churches and you ask them, was Christ Jesus born of the Virgin Mary? They will tell you, well, Mary, that word there means that Mary was a young woman. She wasn't a virgin. You know, the Spirit came upon her, but that doesn't mean that uh, Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit. We need to take away all these supernatural aspects of Christ's birth. It's miraculous in and of itself. 
That's what they'll tell you. And then if you sit there for long enough, you'll realize these people have no idea what the gospel is. Because they've forsaken one of the major tenets of the gospel. If you lose the virgin birth, you lose the gospel itself. And I will say that till the day I die. Well, the other thing that will die is the sinfulness of man. So the man, and you'll hear this, man is born innocent. And we're a blank slate in all our, you will have written upon us by our environment. Things like that. And it's just, it's a lie out of the pit. Mm. You know, uh, I, I, you know they, they don't like sinful man. They don't like original sin either. Yeah, we've, we've already spoken on the sinfulness of man um, and what you're getting at, you know, that these people believe. And it's not just, it's not just the liberals who believe that. Uh, I would actually argue that most mainstream evangelicals believe that as well, that, that people are born innocent uh, without sin, this blank slate. Um, that's why, that's why you hear a lot of evangelicals uh, come up with this notion of age of accountability uh, because they believe you're born innocent. And until you know that you're sinning, you don't really sin. Um, and just, it, it's a very popular notion in the church today, both evangelical and mainline. Uh, and it's, it's a teaching known as Pelagianism. Uh, some of you may know what Pelagianism is, popularized by uh, Pelagius. And he, he argued that man is born uh, with a tabula rasa, a, a clean slate. Um, and so from there, man can choose to do good or he can choose to sin. And that's what, that's what they're teaching. It's, it's nothing but Pelagianism. And uh, Pelagianism was condemned as heresy by the early church. Uh, and it is heresy. Uh, Pelagianism is heresy. Um, and today we see a modern form of Pelagianism, not only in those instances, uh, but in Armenian churches. Uh, they hold to what's called semi-Pelagianism, uh, Arminianism, that works contribute to salvation, though it is by grace that you're saved. Um, and so... At the, at the Synod of Dort, Arminianism was condemned as heretical as well. Um, so keep that in mind. When, when people are, are saying these things, you know, that babies are born innocent, uh, that there's an age of accountability, that, you know, you can choose... You, you come to a point in your life where you choose if you're going to do good, if you're going to do bad. Uh, these, people are, these people are teaching heresy. They're spreading heresy. Uh, and you need to be able to say, no, that's wrong. Uh, and you need to be able to point to Scripture and say, you know, this is what Scripture says about the sinfulness of man. All right. So we kind of went off on a rabbit trail, but it was a quick one. It was a good one. Uh, any questions about uh, the incarnation, Christ taking on human flesh and being uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? All right, so still in the state of humiliation, uh, so if you're looking at the state of humiliation, kind of look at this like scenes in a movie. 
So the first scene is his incarnation. The second scene would be his suffering, uh, the suffering of Christ. Uh, can you get someone to read Hebrews 5, 8, and then someone else to read 1 Peter 4, 1? All right. Charlie's got Peter. He's got Hebrews 5, 8. Mm-hmm. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So what was necessary for Jesus to learn through suffering? Obedience. Obedience. Um, now does that mean that Jesus didn't know how to obey, so he had to suffer so that he had so he could learn how to obey? Yeah. Yeah, so learning obedience uh, in this way isn't that he's, you know, learning something new. Christ knew how to obey. Obviously, before he ever suffered, he obeyed the law of God perfectly, so he knew how to obey. But there's a sense in which his obedience... Uh, had to be uh, accomplished or learned through the act of suffering. And that's the distinction between his act of obedience, which is his fulfilling the law of God, and his passive obedience, which is suffering in our stead. Uh, you guys know that distinction, right? His act of obedience and his passive obedience. So his active obedience was actively obeying the law of God. His passive obedience was taking upon himself the, the punishment that was due our sins. All right, First Peter 4.1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. All right, so why did Christ suffer in the flesh? It is to cease from sin. Yeah, it is to put an end to sin. Uh, through Christ's death, sin was killed. It was put to death. Uh, there's a great book uh, by a Puritan man. I can't recall who it is right now. Uh, and this is going to bother me. It's called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. That's John Owen. Huh? John Owen. Yes. Uh, the Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Um that through Christ's suffering, sin itself and the effects of sin, which is death, were put to death. Uh, or the elect. Yes. No, 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 no. Uh, so the effects of Christ's death uh, in, in putting to death sin was for those for whom Christ died. And Christ died only for the elect. Now there is a sense in which Christ's death uh, was for the unelect, for the unbelievers. And it wasn't as, as salvation or, or as atonement, but as judgment. Uh, and we see that in, in the Old Testament uh, with the way the sacrifices were done, that uh, these sacrificial actions for the unbelievers were to heap judgment upon them. Uh, and the same thing with Christ's death. Christ's death secured life for the elect, but heaps judgment upon the unelect. 
Any other questions concerning Christ's suffering? I guess this just shows the importance of how Christ had to obey the law. Mm -hmm. Um, Wasn't that, you know, he died for us, and so that it wipes away our sin debt, but also that there's that second part where he credits righteousness to Mm -hmm. us, so Yeah, and if you don't have that, then you don't like you you don't have sanctification. If you don't have Christ in his active obedience, and Christ's active obedience being credited unto us as righteousness, as our righteousness, then we don't have sanctification. Uh because we cannot perform good works outside of Christ. We need to be clothed in righteousness in order to do works of righteousness. Um, This is another way in which the federal visionists get this wrong. They would would deny, uh, they do deny the imputation of Christ's righteousness they deny the imputation of his active obedience unto believers. Uh, and you can read men like Schlitzel, um, Doug Wilson a little bit, uh, even you know before the Federal Vision controversy, the, the proto-Federal Visionists like Norman Shepard. Uh, you can read these men and they will say that uh, it's, it's an error to believe that Christ's active obedience is credited to the elect. Uh, because they would say that in turn makes salvation by works. It's absurd. It's insane. What they are doing is they are they are saying the exact same thing that Roman Catholics do. That it is not Christ's righteousness that is credited to you, but that it is by grace, provenient grace is how the Catholics would you would say it. Uh, it's by grace you are then enabled to live a holy life and to uh, merit the, the favor of the Lord. Uh, and, uh, so that's what it is to merit. So well, yeah. It's, it's like they're allowing themselves the opportunity to save themselves. Yeah, so that's, that's how the Roman Catholics would say it. They would use the term merit. The federal visionists, they won't. Because they're, they're, they're more deceptive than that. They're more cunning than that. They will say, you know, you were brought into the covenant by grace. But through your covenant faithfulness, you remain in the covenant. How is that different than you were, you were saved by grace? You were given this provenient grace to then you know, work, you do works of righteousness in order to remain in that state of grace. How is that any different? It's not. So is that kind of a strange form of legalism? Oh, yeah, it, it is. Well, I w- the correct historical term would be neonomianism. Uh, and you can read about the neonomians of the Reformation, uh, Someone you probably have heard of, Richard Baxter, uh, who wrote the book The Reformed Pastor. It's a great book. Richard Baxter was a neonomian. And uh, men, men in the Federal Vision Camp will actually point back to Richard Baxter and say, look, we are historically reformed because men like Richard Baxter are saying basically the same thing that we, were, we are. And so that's their justification for it. But it was neo, it's neonomianism. Uh, Richard Baxter was called out left and right by the other Reformed for being a neonomian. Um, 
neo-nomians were present in the Westminster Assembly. Uh, so just because there's an error present in Reformed history doesn't make that error historically Reformed. But you guys are seeing why we need Christ's act of obedience credited to us and how without that we end up in the same position as Rome or as the federal visionists. You guys are seeing that, right? There is no Which is why federal vision is heresy, which is why Romanism is heresy. Uh, there's no salvation that's found in it. Richard, I think you were going to say something. Uh, they would say that salvation is by grace, but also that you need to cooperate with grace for it to be effective. The Romans? Romanists? Or oh, it seems for both camps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our federal vision yeah. uh, promoters. Um, that yeah. It's possible for you to finally lose your salvation uh, if you don't cooperate with grace. Mm-hmm. You don't go along with it. So they would, they would have to deny uh, by grace alone one of the soul wounds. So it's not that they would deny grace, but they would deny grace alone. They do practically but they will tell you they affirm that salvation is by grace well the catholics won't say grace alone they'll say we believe in salvation by grace the federal visionists will actually say we believe in salvation by grace alone and they've they've sit there and tried to argue how it is that they believe in salvation by grace alone but when you get down to it they deny salvation by grace alone uh, you can say you believe in something all you want, but when you, when your actual doctrine contradicts that, and when you're redefining what salvation by grace alone actually means, and making it fit, making your system of doctrine fit into your new definition of salvation by grace alone, go kick rocks. All right. Any other comments, questions? Well, one, of the problem, one of the things that I think we're trying to do by putting works as part of salvation, and in the case of the Catholic Church, they're trying to promote obedience in, in the flock and give them a reason they need to be obedient, mm-hmm. why they need to show up at Mass, why they need to give to the church, things like that. So they're trying to promote obedience. Um, I also think it's uh, authoritarian that those people who have an authoritarian view of their role and a subordinate role of subordination of everyone else needs to have some way of creating authoritarianism. So it's a means of keeping things under control as I see it. And I would accuse Doug Wilson of that, Hmm. of trying to keep things under control, his control, as an authoritarian figure. And therefore, grace needs to be, you know, by by grace alone, with cooperation on our part. Um, And, you know, they have to sneak that in. And it's the nature of the individual or individuals promoting this, as I see it, that they they want that authoritarianism as part of their gospel message. And they distort it based on their their view of reality. Um, So I'm I'm being a, a bit pejorative about Doug Wilson on purpose. Because I think it needs, we need to call him out. Um, he's, he's um, uh, no, it's a problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, I'm, I'm giving my point of view. Mm. Yeah, it's not. Well, yeah. I think I think I don't think we can be too harsh against heretics. Um, 
I think I think the issue uh, and why men like Doug Wilson, why Federal Vision theology is making a a comeback, making a rise again, is because people were too soft against it in the first place. Too many people in Reformed churches did not hear that Federal Vision is heresy. And so now they're being exposed to it and going to it. Um, so I, to me, whenever I hear you know, race alone followed by a conjunction, it's just a right problem. Whenever you hear that, you know, you know, for and yet also, yeah. you know, it just like that. Yeah. Um, we're not going to go any further in the workbook today since we're already at time. Uh, I do want to recommend to you, uh, since we've, we've broached the topic of Federal Vision, just so you guys know, 2022 is the 20th anniversary of the Federal Vision controversy. Uh, 2002 was when the Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference took place in Monroe, Louisiana, and that uh, sparked Federal Vision. Uh, so 2022 is the 20th anniversary. Uh, and because of that, uh, our friends over at Southfield RP Church in Southfield, Southfield Michigan, uh, right outside of Detroit, uh, our friend over there, Adam Keener, Pastor Adam Keener, is doing a Sabbath school uh, teaching series or maybe their afternoon study series on federal vision. What is federal vision? Uh, today would be their third week in doing it. The first two weeks are online already. Please go and listen to it. It is the most in-depth study I've heard so far on federal vision. Uh, and he's only two weeks into the study. Um, I'll post a link to it on our Facebook page, on our church Facebook page. And I'll also send a link to it in our email, in, a, in the church email. Uh, but, you know, as, as a pastor, part of my duty is warning you against these errors, against these heresies, and exhorting you to avoid them. Um, and you can't avoid what you don't know. Uh, so men, uh, men who espouse these things, who teach these things, which I would say, you, you should mark and avoid. Obviously, Doug Wilson, we've mentioned him numerous times. Uh, John Barrich, uh, one of the original uh, Auburn men. Um, Steve Wilkins, uh, who I believe at one time was a minister in the PCA. Uh, Steve Schlitzel. I mentioned him earlier. He came, he comes from a Dutch Reformed background. Uh, Steve Schlitzel is is probably the most messed up of all of them, to be honest. Uh, and then uh, Peter Lightheart. I've made mention of him in the past before as well. Peter Lightheart was in the PCA. Um, and, and these men who were in the PCA, they were tried. Uh, they were brought to the church courts uh, for their errors, for their heresy, and they were they were exonerated by the PCA church courts, um, which testifies to the fact that church courts can err and err grievously. Um, when I was in seminary in Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama. One of my professors was on the Standing Judicial Commission, which is the highest court uh, for judicial matters in the PCA. Uh, and he was on the Standing Judicial Commission during the Peter Lightheart trial. And I wanted to talk with him about it to figure out why it is that they, that they came to the decision that they did. And he had tears in his eyes when he was telling me that it was the greatest mistake he had ever made in his life, was voting to exonerate Peter Lightheart. And that he was a snake 
that he lied during his testimony in the trial. He was very deceptive. Uh, and that after he left the PCA, his true colors came out. Uh, but at that point, it was too late. The PCA couldn't do anything uh, after that. Uh, so. Well, you know, the Catholic Church did have the bones of some of the martyrs that we burned and burned. Um, they seem to think they had the authority to do it. They could even dig up his bones and take him to trial. Well. You said they burned yeah, the Catholic Church would find the bones of like reformed martyrs. And that, that had the audacity to die before they could complete the trial. So they were buried and they dug them up and, and burned them. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are no bones of Peter Lightheart yet. He's still alive and well, just, as far I'm as I know. Yeah. But the bones of the of what, he, what remains from the PCA to make sure it gets cleansed. Yeah, I I think I think in the PCA federal vision has all but died. I think it is resurfacing in other places. Um, I, I, there there's a problem of federal vision in the RPCNA, not among the ministers, but among members. Yeah. We had a problem here. Yeah. Part of it was we didn't know it. But uh we we it came to us as a mystery, so Yeah, we we just need to be be mindful of these things and, and guard ourselves from these errors. Alright, so uh we will pick up with the death of Christ. We'll finish his humiliation. We'll go to his exaltation next week. All right. Uh, Charlie, can you close us in prayer?